Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Dose Nation. I am your host, Jake, and thank you for joining us all this evening. Of course, with me, as always, is co-host and founder of Dose Nation, James Kent, also author of Psychedelic Information Theory. James, how are you today? I'm doing great, Jake. Let's get this show started. Absolutely. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting show. Tonight's guest is Are You Serious? He's the author of Timothy Leary's Trip Through Time. Uh, are You Serious? Welcome to the program. Thanks a lot. Good to be here. Yeah, it's yeah let me just on. give you a quicker, fuller bio. He uh, is probably best known for Mondo 2000, a magazine he edited in the early 1990s, which was an extension of High Frontiers and Reality Hacker, and he's gone on to do many blogs, uh, transhumanist websites, podcasts. You may know him under the name Ken Goffman. Are you serious? It's really great to talk to you. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. How about yourself, James? Good talking doing, to you. I'm doing well. Uh, where are you calling from? I'm at my home in Mill Valley, California. Oh, great. How's the weather there today? Pretty Very hot. hot. Very yeah. hot. I'm sure I it guess. is. I bet it's brutal. Just uh, about. Yeah. Well, um, it's really great to catch up with you. Um, I have been following you since, I think, 1984, when I was just a teenager, and I had heard of this magazine called High Frontiers. I was wondering who that guy is who's always following me. <laughs> well, was, I guess you found out. <laughs> that was now me. I, now I know. Yeah, <laughs> me and my miscreant friends. Uh, <laughs> so... Uh, I, I know, uh, I, I know your story from, uh, 1984 forward, more or less, but, but give me a little bit of an origin story. Where did, where did Ken Goffman come from before he was Are You Serious? Well, I, you want to go all the way back to birth in Brooklyn, New York? Um, well, we can start in Brooklyn. I mean, I, we don't need to go all the way back to birth. Maybe like, um, <laughs> your early influences and like what you were doing we as a kid. We actually want to go I mean, back Were you earlier. watching TV or were you like, chasing cars on the street or, I mean. Well, both, both. <laughs> I mean, who didn't chase cars? Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I was a typical sort of, uh, middle class, uh, white kid. We moved to the suburbs, West Islip, Long Island, very white bread. Uh, but my parents were very liberal, uh, one an atheist and the other an agnostic. My father was a, a bit of a civil rights activist. Not that he took huge risks, but, uh, we did have the only black folks in town, uh, coming over to, uh, attend meetings for the NAACP, uh, occasionally um so yeah I so mean, there's uh, a, there's a little bit of a liberal activism streak in you um which i yeah. think maybe some people may misinterpret as libertarianism although i wouldn't say that you're a libertarian that would be going too far am i right or yeah I, well i mean i wouldn't say that i'm in anything uh, <laughs> I, I i tend to uh stay away from the absolutes and and the extremes uh you know, in my twenties, I was certainly available for, uh, sort of extreme yippie anarchist, left anarchist kind of, uh, mentality. Uh, and the, uh, my sensibility is similar now, but, uh, much more, much more modulated, much more against totalism of, of any sort. No, so, I, I mean, this- I, Oh, sorry. I get the sense that you, your generation maybe missed the, the summer of love or the hippies by just a couple of years. Is that right? You weren't right there in the middle of it. You came into yeah. it just a I couple of years too late, right? As the party was ending and everybody was cleaning up. Yeah, I was 14 going on 15, uh, when, uh, you know, in 1967, um, we discovered the hippies, um, through Life magazine thing about the BN. So we were aware of them before the Summer of Love, myself and my friends, and, and we were into it to the extent that you could be into it when you were 14 and it was just starting. And you really don't know anything about it other seeing, other than seeing the, these pictures of people with really long hair looking and like that. And the music, the music, I'm sure, was probably yeah, carrying yeah. the message farther than than anything else yeah my best friends were like little garage rockers so you know they they were big into the seeds and the trogs and the rolling stones and all that so you know there's kind of a there was kind of almost a punk doper attitude even before the hippies came along yeah so you were um i like to say that you were punk before there was such a thing as punk and you were cyberpunk before there was such a thing as cyberpunk uh, how come, how come you're always so, so ahead of the curve there? Uh, what, uh, what is it from, what is it about your, I mean, is, is it because your parents were so liberal and you were just into new things or were the scene that you were running with, were they just a bunch of like forward looking geniuses or, or just? 
I think it's, it's nihilist. Pretty, I think it's, yeah, I think it's pretty much an accident, actually. Uh, my brain is, is wired weirdly, so that, that may have something to do with it. And, you know, I, I never, uh, I never retain much information, so I'm always available for the next new thing. <laughs> okay, so did you, uh, did you attend college? Did you get any? I did. I was, a, I was a slow starter. I was very much a turn on, tune in, uh, dropout guy, uh, when I became an adult in 1970. So I went to college at the end of the 70s. Um, at the now, age when you of, were when you were a teenager, what kind of what kind of you were doing drugs and you know getting high and smoking pot and taking LSD? Yeah, yeah, all, all that stuff. Um, I mean, 67 came around. Uh, I don't think myself and my friends could get a hold of the legitimate psychedelics until about a year later. Um, so you know we tried, you know, smoking banana peels, and, <laughs> you know, drinking aspirin from the bottom of the barrel or, or, you know, all these, all these weird little things, sniffing glue a little bit, uh, not enough. Well, to that, just... that, that works. Okay. Yeah, it definitely, <laughs> definitely is an altered state. I can remember listening to the uh, Strawberry Alarm Clock album high on glue. It, it was fairly impressive. Uh, and, and the, that context. Um, so, you know, we, yeah, we got a hold of pot and, uh, we started doing the acid in 68. I was very, you know, I had the activist background. Um, so I, I started reading New Left Notes, the, uh, SDS journal also around 1967. Um, so I was like reading this sort of New Left, you know, quasi commie stuff. Um, at the same time that now I was... that that leads us into the whole zine thing. I mean, this whole yeah. underground publishing thing didn't really exist until that that period in the late '60s. I mean, there was some underground publishing, but it wasn't like subversive underground publishing. Oh yeah, I mean, one of the things that really impressed me, that really started me on my path, and this again is before the summer of '67. Uh, the town by then I was living in Binghamton, New York, about three hours north of uh, New York City. And, you know, even though there's more of a redneck element there, there's also more of a counterculture element there than in the Long Island suburbs. So uh, there was a head shop there even before the summer of 1967. And my friends went and uh, stumbled on it, I guess, in downtown Binghamton and came back to my house with a bag full of stuff from the could head you shop. Get a, could you get balloons of nitrous oxide back then? No, I don't think we nothing like that. That's no, too no. bad. That's really too bad. You know, <laughs> too bad. I have very strong opinions on that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I had to go there. I have st- I have strong feelings about it. Yeah. I don't. I, I'm I'm lacking for opinions. Um, strong, good opinions. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Strong, strong, fun opinions. Yes. Um, anyway, uh, so they brought back all this stuff like buttons and beads and you know. Uh, different things to wear and incense and an ins- Buddha incense burner. And they were gleefully pouring all that stuff out. And at the bottom of it were two copies of the San Francisco Oracle, which oh, I know my, yeah. which I know my friend Vinny must have bought, but then uh, it was not cool to be intellectual. So he was pretending to be disinterested in it. And I grabbed them. I said, I want these. And naturally he had to let me have them. Uh, so, yeah, I started reading the Oracle, and and that was my first experience with the underground press, and uh, yeah, I was totally zapped into that. I loved that, and you know, immediately after that, I started, uh, uh, I I came in touch or in contact with the more left wing underground press, the sort of stuff like the East Village Other and the Berkeley Barb, and I, I, I was even more zapped into that. So, and then I started my own in 1970 called space space magazine in binghamton new york space i started magazine was your was your first was your first foray into publishing yeah we had four of them i started no uh, i wanted to i wanted to go back a little bit maybe just 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 touch on this for a second because i remember when i was a kid there was a period probably when i was around 16 or 17 where i was looking at a newspaper or looking at a magazine and taking high school journalism and realizing i can make my own magazine there's nothing stopping me. There was not. There was no barrier access to media publishing um, that I think m- m- people people used to have. What when you picked up the Oracle? Did you have a similar feeling? Like, hey, if these hippies can get away with putting this out, I can do something like this too. I mean, was it was it as simple as that? 
Yeah, I don't remember having that feeling about the Oracle. What what I what happened was, you know, I was getting into the uh the new left and, and nineteen sixty eight was such an exciting year. Um with, you know, the the thing in France, the uh the revolution in France and, and the takeover of Columbia University and sort of all this wild militant activity going on. You know, I wanted to get in on it and and my first thought was to create a underground Newspaper. I had a little underground newspaper in high school, actually. Uh, the Lower Left Corner, it was called, and we did two. <laughs> lower editions. Left Corner. That's that's great. Yeah, it was just you know uh, uh, a bunch of stuff glued to uh, eight by eleven piece of paper, and then xeroxed and and stapled together. Um, so I mean, at that so point, there was I, something there was something in your in your makeup that made you want to publish from a very early age. Even I if think it was just so. Small yeah, time. Yeah. Yep. Yep. There was that thing. Whatever it is that uh, uh, made me realize that this is something that you can you can grab. You don't need a lot of equipment to do it. You know, even even with the when we went into print at that time, you uh, you pasted stuff onto boards. Right. Uh, yeah, I remember the old pasteboard. Yeah, days. yeah, and, and that was really fun to do. I mean, you could you could really see what your target was. In some ways, it was better than doing it on computer because you could really see exactly you know. Yeah, well, can you imagine pasting up a page of Mondo 2000 on a pasteboard? Yeah. <laughs> well, we did, did High Frontiers that way. We did. did uh, okay, so, well, so, so when did you did, you did Space Magazine, but then was High Frontiers out of Long Island too? Or Oh, no, High Frontiers, I, I had... It was California. To, you had already moved yeah, out west by that point. Yeah, I had gone to college, and then um, at the end of my time in college, I was in a punk band in college, Um and, you know, I was in a, a fairly nihilistic frame. And at the same time, I had started reading Leary and Wilson in the mid-70s. And That's that Robert was, Anton Wilson. Yeah, and Robert Anton Wilson. Every guest we've had for the last few weeks is sort of... Hey, got back to Wilson is, is their roots. So, uh, yeah, yep. Bob, Bob was very is, big back in those days. So, anyway, uh, uh, that kind of stuff was creeping up on me. And um, then uh, I took some... I took 500 mics of liquid LSD on the uh, day after John Lennon was shot. So I guess that was 1980. And I had this uh, tremendous uh, float into the cosmos. And when I came down, I became convinced that it was, it was up to me to start the neo-psychedelic revolution that somebody well, you know, to- that's, that's a pretty common thing. I mean, that's a pretty common yeah. thing for somebody to come out of maybe their first Maybe not their first psychedelic experience, but their first maybe paradigm-shattering psychedelic experience to come back with the with the message: Hey, I, I'm the one who's responsible for making things happen around here. Let's go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Pseudo messianic. We're gonna get things done now because you've just come off of this big vision quest. So yeah. you you had to kind of take charge attitude after that first that first acid experience. Yeah, well, it wasn't my it wasn't it wasn't my first experience by far. Oh. But it was but, it was the big one. It was a big one. It was one of the big ones, and it was it was the one that where where everything was right. You know, <laughs> when I was a boy, everything was right. Um, you know, at, in previous experiences, there were. I mean, when I did things in my hometown, there was always sort of a sense that uh, uh, I was under heavy manners somehow that I might get attacked by the local authorities or by. Uh, 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 jock thugs or that my parents would find out and so this was well, kind yeah, of you, a- were, you were when you're in your hometown you're in kind of a bottle because you understand the the, the scope and the scale of the of what you're sitting in but right. if you're in a new place and you don't understand the boundaries of the area that's you're in it's a lot easier for your mind to just kind of escape out into that 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 unknown territory yeah and, and i mean be, instead being, of being a- trapped in by the boundaries of what you know yeah, yeah be, being in college, you know, uh, in the early 80s, not that different from being in college in the 70s. There were no rules against saying, hey, I'm tripping, you know. <laughs> Pretty much even even with jocks around, there were no rules against that. You know, uh, the professors didn't have any rules against that. And so so I could let myself go, and, and that became sort of a very transcendent and, of course, a megalo, ultimately a megalomaniacal uh Trip where it was up to me to start the uh, neo psychedelic movement, but I thought it was—I mean, I thought it was up to me because punk was to such a degree rejecting the uh, psychedelic movement, 
and the psychedelic movement was far away from punk and from new wave. And I thought, well, I'm the guy who, you know, likes both these things. So, uh, maybe, you know, there's almost a rationality to it, you know. Yeah, you were, you were a linchpin connecting the two, like, freight trains of the revolution together. Right. And it's sort of. Put it. (laughs) So, so did, uh, did High Frontier come out of that? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's what, uh, caused me to start High Frontiers, absolutely. Now, for people who don't know my origin story, I remember sitting in, uh, my friend Joel Murphy's bedroom one afternoon looking at a copy of High Frontier. And we, for the life of us, could not figure it out. I mean, we thought that it had maybe been materialized down from orbit somewhere. Yeah, (laughs) because we did not know anybody. Any, I mean, we were of course in Hawaii. We were young kids in Hawaii. We didn't know anybody who was into the stuff that was in High Frontier, and it it was like this. um, You know, it was like looking at you know the captain's log from Star Trek and just trying to figure out where the hell these people were coming from and what's going on. Can you, you remember, explain? You remember you, which one you saw? Well, the to, to be honest with you, I think I saw my. I think my first, the first thing I ever saw was the Sun Ra issue of Reality Hacker. Okay, yeah, that was but, definitely. But that was definitely down under this, down under in this stack was a copy of High Frontiers, and I don't remember which issue it was, but I remember looking at this stack of. I mean, it must have been like maybe uh, five High Frontiers and Reality Hacker magazines all you know, together in a bundle that I was going through. And I just couldn't, I mean, it was like reading hieroglyphics because, you know, I had never been exposed to any of these ideas. And it made me, you know, it made me think that there was this, you know, really crazy scene going on, but it was, it was basically just you and a couple buddies, right? Largely. I mean, you know, there, there was kind of a scene in San Francisco or, or we developed a scene or, or ended up in contact with the scene. Uh, but yeah, when I, when it first started, it was just, it was pretty much just me and, uh, Mark Frost, Somerset Mamow. Uh, and then there was Charles Ferris. Um, when we did that first issue, it was, it was very small and it had very little national distribution. It was mostly left around locally in the Bay Area. A lot of them were just left out to pick up in libraries and stuff like that. But we heard from a fair number of people pretty quickly. You know, we, we went to like a Terrence McKenna lecture and passed out issues and half the people said, Oh, I have it already. And they all came back. <laughs> they all yeah. came back. They all came back to our house for a party, and I mean, in, in that kind of circle, everybody was already speaking the same language, you know. Uh, so yeah, it was, it was, but but yeah, there was a sense in which we we were intentionally throwing out an alien artifact that would be confounding, and you know, uh, there was always the uh, the trickster the trickster edge to it, you know. It's like, <laughs> haha, you can't understand this. And actually, we didn't even understand some of it ourselves. We were just—you like, uh, know—I just remember reading something about. Um, I can't remember what it was. It was—it was sort of like a pre-Freegan, like how to live off of dumpster diving kind of article, maybe, or like how to live off of cardboard and vitamin pills, or I, I don't remember exactly what it was. <laughs> But it was, you know, there was a lot, definitely a lot of times we read, we, I mean, the thing that was most confounding to me was I, I couldn't look at it and, I, and gauge immediately, are these guys serious? Or is this some sort of practical joke? And I think it was sort of somewhere in the middle. Yeah, it was both. I mean, yeah. Yeah, we were definitely trying to uh, bring about uh, the revolution, so to speak, with the playful, puckish spirit. Well, I go back. Spirit, uh, spirit. You know, I go back to my roots in the yippies, in in some ways. That's so, that. when you were when you were publishing, um, were you also were you still doing a lot of drugs during the time that you were publishing? I mean, would you guys sit around high and and think about the way that you were going to put the magazine together, or when you were working, was it just not? Was it just out of the question? Or was um, there a blur there? Yeah, it was pretty much a blur. I mean, it was way, <laughs> it was it was way more than I expected. You know, when when I moved out to California, I was more the type of guy who would, uh, you know, I'd smoke pot in the evening, but a trip would be something that would happen two or three times a year. And, uh, you know, I immediately ended up in a circle with people who wanted to take lots of psychedelics a lot of the time. So, yeah, we were, we were pretty high uh, 
throughout a lot of it. Um, you know, I mean, when we're actually pasting out the boards or, uh, you know, dealing with, you know, the letters and subscriptions, at that point we were probably pretty straight. But uh, a lot of the time we were not. How did, so reality, High Frontier eventually became Reality Hacker. And what was, what was the decision making there? Was it just a new group of people or was it some money get, get brought into the scene or what was going on? Well, yeah. I mean, we were doing this thing for three or four years and, and, you know, we were not able to live off of it. Um, even though High Frontiers in, in terms of a zine, it did very well. It got up to about 20,000 circulation and it was pretty. Oh, yeah. That's, that's good. Yeah, so it was pretty influential and so forth. But uh, you know, we were we were cert- cycling a lot through the tech culture by then, um, and we were spending a lot of time. We were going to parties in Palo Alto, and we were shocked, just shocked, to find out that the people who were creating the ec- economy of the future were all heads. Um, <laughs> were you really shocked, or was it? A- no, not really. Yeah, that's sarcastic. I, I, I was. I mean, I was. I was sort of. You know. I thought this was happening, but then, you know, I, it was like a confirmation, really. Uh, but anyway, we, we, I particularly started to think, well, this is, this is really the edge. The, the drugs are not the edge. The, uh, technology and the science and with the, with the drugs being a, uh, an energizer of the edge. Um, you know, this is the stuff to, uh, start writing and thinking about. Also, uh, cyberpunk was coming up. And uh, particularly of Bruce Sterling's introduction to Mirror Shades, uh, when he talked about what cyberpunk was about in fiction, um, you know, this sort of hyper, hyper real, uh, modern culture with, uh, the oncoming of things getting smaller, everything getting smaller and faster and digital. And I just thought, Oh, this is it, man. This is the stuff to cover. Um, so yeah, it was kind of my idea to change the name to uh, Reality Hackers, which, uh, in terms of distribution, was a mistake. Our our uh, our, distribu- our distribution went down. You don't you don't sort of change the name of your magazine. You don't change the brand. Just as no, no. Distributors don't like that, and nobody. <laughs> the first one, the first Reality Hackers, we put a little High Frontiers in the corner. So yeah, I, high, I, yeah, I remember that. Uh-huh. Yeah. So it was High Frontiers Reality Hackers. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, Reality Hackers was, was commercially a flop. Um, and the Sunrise particularly was a disaster because somebody had hooked us up to a big mainstream distributor who took like 65,000 of them and sent them mostly to outlets in the South, Piggly Wigglies, uh, where, you know, you had this uh, somewhat threatening looking African American man in a muumuu. Well, uh, I would call him threatening looking. I would call him deranged and bizarre looking. Well, but, you know, you're thinking about people in the South. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but yeah, he's wearing a muumuu and he's like covered in glitter and rainbow yeah, colored I, I, halos I, and totally, stuff. I think he's totally beautiful. <laughs> he's, he's a spaceman. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it did terribly. And, uh, so somehow, somewhere along the line, that wasn't working. And, um, I was, I was sitting around watching TV one night, high on morphine, which I, I don't want to endorse, but there was, you know, it was just one of those Friday nights. Every now and again. Uh, but, uh, there was some show on called Future 2000. And then in the middle of the show, there was an advertisement for something called Furniture 2000. And it was this 2000, that 2000. And I kind of wandered into Queen Moo's room and I said, uh, let's change the name to something with 2000 in it. And she like, within half a second, she said, Mondo. And she started mm-hmm. explaining how the angular and circular nature of the letters would make a great logo. Oh, I don't that's think, true. I don't Very think good. she'd even thought about it. I think she just did it. Yeah, she's, uh, you know. No, you guys were living, were your roommates in the Berkeley house at this point? Yeah, we were up in uh, what came to be so known. So give me the origin story for the Berkeley house. How did that come about? Because that's a pretty legendary little intersection. Yeah. Well, uh, we were living, uh, the, the guy who designed the first, the second issue of the magazine, Mark Franklin, a.k.a. Lord Knows. Yeah, we were, Mark. Yep, I know Mark. We were living, <laughs> we were living in Berkeley. In a pretty nice spot, actually, in a uh, two uh, two person house, whatever you call it, a uh, um, on, yeah, yeah, on on the uh, 
ranch-style house? Yeah, on the edge of a park. Those are my favorite kind. <laughs> yeah, so it was it was pretty nice, but it was down in the flats. Um, and uh, I got into uh, a relationship with uh, Allison Kennedy, a.k.a. Queen Moo. Queen Moo. Mm-hmm. Who was living in her husband's house, uh, Michelle Strickman. He was away in uh, Germany or France uh, teaching. And then, uh, I don't know, I mean, it's a lengthy story about this. You don't was, need to give us all the details, but yeah, you yeah. So wound up somehow, moving in there. <laughs> somehow, somehow she, uh, she and another uh, woman, uh, Debbie Harlow, who's pretty well known in psychedelic circles, uh, they decided to, uh, find a place together. And, uh, Moose kind of stumbled upon this beautiful place up in the Berkeley. We were already in the Berkeley Hills at that point, but this was a little bit higher up and, you know, borderline mansion. And she just knocked on the door. She had a feeling about it. And, uh, she was, she was ready to, to like babysit to live in that house. So she, she talked to the owners and the owner said, well, we're moving out. We can rent it to you. Oh, so great. Then, so she started gathering up people, and with five bedrooms, it wasn't prohibitive to uh, to rent. So uh, we ended up in what came to be called uh, in in the media, which you know they always copy the, each other. It came to be called a techno gothic citadel in the Berkeley Hills, and it really did look like something out out of a cloister. <laughs> techno gothic citadel. Do you know who coined that? Phrase? No, that sounds interesting. I, I'm not sure who came Somebody up. Somebody in the San Francisco Weekly or the the Bay I Area think it, press. I think it might have been the Chronicle. Yeah. Uh, okay. I, I'm not sure, but uh, I mean, it really did look like something out of a Blue Oyster Cult album, particularly when somebody bought an old red Mercedes and it was parked in the driveway. And the, if if the place was a little shrouded in clouds, you would definitely feel like you were walking into a Blue Oyster Cult album cover. <laughs> and um uh I I refer to it as the Mondo 2000 house I think that's Yeah, that was what it was now the Mondo, the Mondo house. house. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the Mondo house. And um you had did you have full occupancy there when you were publishing the magazine? Yeah, I mean that was uh, uh from yeah, from pretty much right from the beginning we were we were working out of out of the magazine. And there were various shifts and so forth. The art department for a while was in downtown San Francisco. Uh, but eventually pretty much the whole thing was operating out of that house. I mean, there were, there were like nine or ten people coming there every day. Well, there were four of us living there and five other people coming there every day running, running this magazine as though it were a professional magazine. And it appeared to be a professional magazine. I mean, you guys, your art department did an amazing job of, um, I mean, I think they were really pushing the boundaries of what you could do with print technology at the time. I mean, it was sort of the very first dawn of digital printing. And you guys, I think, were running these huge disks across town that had, like, that stored maybe, you know, five megabytes each. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and you'd have to go to uh, uh, a Krishna copy place to, to print things out. Right, the Krishna and Copy Center down in Berkeley. Yeah, down but, at uh, yeah, Bart, University. Bart, uh, Bart Nagel, the art director, claims that we were the first magazine ever done entirely uh, digitally, which I think may be true. I think it may be true. I think uh, I remember that. I remember around the time I was really obsessed with digital publishing, and you guys were the cutting edge. I mean, everybody wanted to be Mondo. Yeah, they and, did. Uh, who were who were your art director? Who were the the guys who put that that together? Yeah, well, it, it was it was Bart uh, Nagel was the art director, and his assistant was Heidi Foley, who mm-hmm. was his girlfriend at the time, and she eventually became also the art director, and you know worked in in almost exactly the same style. You know, it's funny. It's like a, a rock band. You know, where mm-hmm. one of the leaders leave, and they, and it's, you know, it's they still go on with the same musical or vocal styles or whatever. Uh, but yeah, the re- initially it was very much Bart. I mean, Heidi, Heidi was very active as well. Uh, but uh, he had come from uh, Phoenix, Arizona, and he had never designed uh, a magazine before, and he had never really worked on computer before. And he was working for something called San Francisco Magazine, I think, uh, just doing a few pages here and there. And I didn't want to hire him because he didn't have any experience with all this stuff. Um, and I wanted to hire somebody else who was pretty grim, uh, but at least she would get an issue done. And I felt the pressure from the distributors to get an issue done. But uh, Allison 
just kind of she she looked at his astrological charts and said, <laughs> he, he's in. <laughs> you should have made that. more decisions that way, I think, in the long run, or maybe that was, maybe that, that was, was a, the Achilles' heel as well. <laughs> uh, well, that one was a great decision. Yeah. So uh, Bart came out. It took a real long time to get going, but uh, uh, that was because we didn't feed him enough uh, content that was complete. Also, so between all of us, so we were we were radically dysfunctional uh, before the second. Yeah, and this was issue. before email. You couldn't just email somebody. Copy. Yeah. I mean, I guess email was happening at this time, but I mean, there were some there were some digital files, like huge digital pictures online, like we do now. Back then, it was a much everything, more difficult process. Everything was very slow, but and and we were very dysfunctional at that point. Uh, but once we got the second issue out, we we started almost making our quarterly uh, deadlines for a couple of years, and then it became dysfunctional again. And that's <laughs> and that's the story. The infighting, yeah. Uh, well, you had a you had some external pressure coming down on you once you once you guys got successful. I remember, I think there was, um, I don't know if this was bef- after the beginning of the end or right there towards the beginning of the end. You guys got a quick, um, I guess I'll call it a visual shout out in the Simpsons, where somebody, one of these surly counter people, was reading Mondo Frowno magazine. <laughs> Mondo Frano, yeah, and they had the, yeah. uh, the yeah. logo designed. Exactly. I remember actually seeing that and going, "Oh fuck! If the Simpsons is making fun of them, they're they're dead." <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> because at the was... same time, there was this war between you and Wired magazine, and Wired magazine, I think, desperately wanted you guys out of business for yeah, well, for whatever Wired, reason. Wired came along at the end of '92, and we we were we had already we got an incredible amount of attention very suddenly. Like right after our second issue came out, which I think was, you know, late 90 at best, or maybe even sooner than that. Um, suddenly we're in all the magazines and newspapers and, you know, uh, yeah, we were, we were pretty much all over. Um, yeah, you were guys, you guys were the touchstone of that cultural turning point. I, that I basically, period, I, I, you guys were it. I mean, the Mondo House was the epicenter of that movement, I think. I don't know if you were right, to give you I, any. Any kind of argument in that area. It was exciting to the media because it was so um, other, you know. It was it was so <laughs> new, and they had no idea. They you guys were sitting around like like in your offices, like taking paracetam and smoking DMT and writing about teledildonics or how to fuck people over the internet. Um, yeah, yeah. It was just and, the uh, just weirdest thing. It was so it was so shiny, and you know. <laughs> Weird, and you know, we were having so much fun with it, you know, so so on so unapologetic about hype and just and just crazy and funny. Now, was, and, was the Mondo Two Thousand House was it was it just like a haze of marijuana smoke all the time, or what did you guys? No, actually, yeah, I think I mean one of the ironies of Mondo, you know, once we started organizing our business and uh, our daily, the people who came in daily to work on the magazine, a lot of the. Uh, the new people who came in to work on the magazine wanted magazine experience. They right. weren't the, they, they weren't, they weren't, they weren't big heads. Some of them weren't heads at all. So, you know, there was this, this sort of thing, you know, Queen Moo and myself, a few other people were, were kind of the heads, but the, the people were you like locked in a corner room and upstairs somewhere. <laughs> I was, yeah. I had my own small room in the basement. You know, there was a little marijuana smoke coming out of that room. Uh, but generally, uh, uh, no, I mean during the days it was it was pretty straightforward, and then at night the uh, parties would start to happen. A whole different crowd would come in, and the parties would start to happen. Actually, when Douglas Rushkoff wrote his book uh, Siberia uh, yeah, about this that. culture sure. in the early nineties, his impression of Mondo was mostly from coming in it, coming over at night, where where a whole different group of people were. Taking yeah, drugs yeah, and yeah, being yeah. crazy, and uh, yeah, it's Queen Moo like got Ecstasy Club, which is a different Douglas Rushkoff book. But Queen Moo became very upset about it because it wasn't the way we operated during the day, and she thought advertisers wouldn't uh, wouldn't like the idea that we were, you know, smoking DMT and having abortions on acid in our living room or whatever, you know, was the reflection. Satanic, satanic abortions. Satanic Off- offerings to the dark, dark lord. Or right, right. <laughs> yeah. So crazy times. I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing, um, unparalleled must be the best time of your life. I mean, looking back on it, I think, I think so. In some ways, the early 
years of High Frontiers were more fun. Oh, uh, yeah. Because it was a lot of psychedelics and a lot of self-exploration and a lot of fun. And, and that uh, really compacted period in their early 90s was intense and interesting and, you know, massive ego pluck stroke. But uh, a lot I don't know of if pressure I would, too, I'm guessing. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't exactly call the time fun necessarily i mean it was it was you know i had a weird edge to it that, that you know i wasn't ready for i was uh i was who a guy was the, who was the whipcracker around there when stuff wasn't getting done was that queen moo or did you have to do that there probably the business manager linda uh, uh, <laughs> you know well queen moo was a whip not really no she wasn't she wasn't concerned about timeliness which was uh, yeah, I'm getting what, that. So what killed she the magazine concerned with timeliness, and yeah. and you were barely being able to cover, you know, your loose ends. Yeah, uh, I mean, I was to some degree, I was the one pushing everybody yeah. to get things done, and then uh, we brought in the managing editor, I think, by issue number three, Andrew Holtkrantz, and, and he was good. Yeah, yeah, Andrew was great. I like Andrew. Yeah, Andrew's Andrew's really smart, and he would, you know, together, and he was really good. I had I had handed most of the. Uh, sort of the big editor-in-chief responsibilities I had passed on to our senior editor, St. Jude. And she was always a little slow-moving also. But I was dealing with so much incoming in terms of PR that, uh, you know, I was, I was constantly dealing with that. Um, so, yeah, on the whole, somehow we uh, managed to be fairly functional for a couple of years during that well, where did, intense where did- period. Where did the moniker Are You Serious come from? That was back in High Frontiers. Yeah, I started right at the beginning of the thing. I don't know. It's just something you that didn't pop- want to use your real name. I paranoid, or you just it was it was no, no, more, a, more like a, a nom de plume. Yeah, Jello Biafra, Alice Cooper, whatever. Sure. It was, yeah, it was, yeah, it was the punk movement kind of thing. Yeah, and it was fun, you know, or hippie, wavy gravy, whatever. Oh, sure. Uh, yeah, yeah. And then you'd have Bob Wilson had that whole thing about the serious mysteries and uh, whether whether people had picked up communication from the dog star. So my name was sort of a uh, a crack on 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 all that. So, and also, I mean, it was an open invitation to alien contact, actually. <laughs> now, Mondo two thousand, um, it was it burned bright, but of course, we know the candle that burns twice as bright burns. <laughs> Half as long, uh, yeah. according to Blade Runner, and um, you guys eventually flamed out. But you did do something. Um, I, I credit Mondo 2000 with birthing what's now known as the transhumanist or singular singularitarian movement. Um, would you? Would you say that's accurate? Or oi. I mean, oi, oi! I don't want that. I don't want that thrust on my mantle. Yeah, uh, I think what was happening was, I mean, certainly through uh, the Leary Wilson thing. Space migration, intelligence, increased life extension, the idea of, of you know, uh, neurological evolution and all those things. That, those were things that were I downloaded and brought with me to High Frontiers. Um, and so that was in there. But I mean, there was a sense in which uh, the uh, Max Moore and Natasha, Natasha Moore and all these yeah, uh, people. Moore, yeah. The, mm-hmm. Yeah, the cryonics people, all those people. But had those, their were, own. those were the people that you had to go to for your content. I mean, when you were out for there, some in of, the two thousand, you really yeah. had to. I mean, you you were. When I try to tell people the difference between magazine and zine publishing, magazine publishing, you're publishing to an audience that already exists. With zine culture, you're trying to make a scene. You're trying to you're trying to you know give the culture that feeds this this scene and keeps it alive. So you were trying to go out there and find this new culture and yeah. this transhumanist. Well, I mean, if you look at yeah, sorry, the transhumanist if, movement was like one of the one of the only was one of the most vocal fringes of that movement. Of right, that the extropians. Movement. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it was one. El- that's what they were called, right? <laughs> it was one element of Mondo 2000, but I, a lot of you look at the issues of Mondo that uh, a lot of what we covered was actually just sort of computer news, just like really hyped up and, you know, weird fringe cultural stuff and so forth. So, I mean, there, there was an element of the extropian stuff and the transhumanist stuff, but I was always the whole thing of, uh, those people taking themselves too seriously, I thought was scary, actually. Yeah, I mean, even, 
even Timothy Leary decided it was kind of scary towards towards the end. Um, so so you know there was always kind of a, a weird give and take between us and and that whole that whole culture. I mean nobody was really into the cryonics thing. Um, so I mean yes and yes and no. I think I think we were an element. We were kind of a countercultural psychedelic element of uh, early transhumanism. Mm-hmm. And then you went on to um, you were editing H Plus for a while, yeah, um, which also made a stab at print publishing, but but didn't quite get the formula correct there either. Um, and now, what what are you doing now? What's your latest gig? I mean, that's what you're here to talk about. So let's transition into what you're doing now with the Timothy Leary estate. Yeah, yeah. Well, I wrote. Uh, it started off really. I was going to write a timeline for uh, the website timothyleary.org. Uh, that they want to have ready, that, that they will have ready in time for the, uh, New York Public Library's release of Timothy Leary's archives. I mean, Timothy Leary kept everything. Now, when is, when is the release of the archives? This is in the fall, in September. I don't remember the exact date. Are you, do you get to go to the ceremony? I probably do if I can get there in New York. Yeah, I would probably get to go to the ceremony. Um, but, uh, he saved everything. So, and, his life is completely transparent, actually, which I think uh, some people who felt that he was hiding a lot will find interesting uh, because it'll all be there. I mean, he didn't, he, you know, any legal documents or anything like that, he'll, he'll have saved it. There's nothing he would have burned or thrown away because he was nuts about being a pack, rack, pack rat. You know, he was he was Andy Warhol squared when it came to being a pack rat. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, he has all of his documents going back to what early pre Harvard days or uh, childhood. Oh, I'd be going childhood. back to childhood, childhood, teenage yeah. years, West Point Academy. Yeah, yeah. those, those uh, from school. his those from his mother telling him to behave or or whatever. <laughs> you know, wow. Uh, the whole the whole thing. So it's and you got be, it, you get access to all of this material, or are you just sort of peripherally managing? No, I'm, I'm not getting. You know, it's not really ready yet. I'm going to get access the same time that everybody else does. I see. Okay. okay. In the meantime, I I started to uh, work on this timeline, and uh, you know, I, I, we agreed that it had to be substantial. That you couldn't just do bullet points and say, you know. Uh, 1971 with the Black Panthers in Algiers, Algeria. Without, without. <laughs> well, ex- yeah, with bullet points, you you don't get to see all the pieces in the middle. That just looks it just looks crazy and schizophrenic. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 you can't really tell that story briefly. Um, so it was agreed that I should do about thirty, forty thousand words on it. And uh, once I'd done that, um, it became sensible to. Uh, Make it available as a book. So we made it available as an ebook and also as a print on demand book at, at on timothyleary.org. And I mean, it was just great fun just going through his whole life and, you know, not doing some big, massive, mega biography, not doing a real narrative, but, you know, still following the format of, you know, 1968 through 1969 and then a bunch of stuff that happened and then kind of Finding the connection between well, there's and- just so. I mean, when you say a bunch of stuff that happened, there's just so much stuff. I mean, if you read <laughs> Timothy Leary's autobiography, it's mind-boggling. What the yeah, the, and the he left. He left so much. He was, he was in and and uh, everything that he was, everything that he went through. I mean, um, yeah, the book the book company made him cut that in half. I'm hoping that uh, some somewhere somewhere all that stuff is is you know we'll find that in his archives. Yeah, I think one of the, the one of the fascinating sort of mysterious edges of Timothy Leary's life is the fact that he knew a woman who may have been giving LSD to John Kennedy, who was in the White House. Yeah, and that woman was later found murdered or had committed suicide sitting in the front seat of her car in a parking lot. No, yeah. she was walking along the. Oh, she was walking. Sorry, the yeah, go ahead. In uh, in some park in Washington D.C. Um, so yeah, I mean, this story, I, this first appeared in flashbacks in 1983, and I thought, Tim, come on. You know, I did, Tim's a trickster, so I thought, okay, he's trying to yeah, sell Yeah, so there's drugs. stuff in there, there's stuff in flashbacks that you read that you just can't believe, but then when you go and, ve- and investigate them, you, you realize that they did actually happen. Yeah, and she's one of them, and the fact that he ended up in a 
cell right next to Charles Manson. I thought yeah, he just, again, one I of those stories that you go, what? He made that up to say something about Charles Manson, right? That's what I thought. And then you find out all this stuff really happened. The, the, and no, and and the, and the other thing is that um, he wrote a lot of psychological profiling tests that to help you um figure out what kind of personality people have. And when he was sent to prison to figure out what kind of prison he was going to get sent to, he had to take a battery of psycho- psychological tests, which he had written himself. Right. So he made himself out to be a docile prisoner and then escaped, <laughs> and then he escaped, from jail. escaped the prison on a, by pulling <gasps> himself hand Jews. over hand on a high wire. Right. He, but, then he escaped, he escaped hand over hand on a high wire. He got rescued by the weathermen and then he got flown to Algiers to live with the Black Panthers in exile. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, it's, yeah, just, it's a crazy I mean, you story. Can't write a story <sighs> like that. No, nobody would believe it. Anyway, the, the Mary Pinchot Meyer thing uh, in uh, 1962, Mary I think. Meyer was the one who apparently knew Jackie Kennedy and was... Jack Kennedy. Hit. Yeah, not Jackie. Oh, oh, she Jack- knew Jackie also, but, uh, uh, you know, she knew everybody in Washington. And she was had been a, had, she had been married to Cord Meyer, who was a major guy in the CIA, which is where the Meyer name comes from. Uh, but anyway, she... Meyer, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So anyway, she came to see Illyria in 62 and said that uh, she was part of this group of women who were attached to very powerful men in Washington, D.C., and she and they wanted to uh, turn them on to uh, LSD, to psychedelic drugs, because they thought that it might uh, help the world situation if, uh, uh, if they expanded their sensitivity and awareness and so forth. So Tim sent her off with some instruction manuals and uh, a few hits of uh, LSD, which of course was legal then. And, you know, it, it went along for a while and he would get reports from her. She would visit and say, everything's going great. My lover is, you know, took LSD and all the women are reporting good results. And then at some point, uh, she came in in a panic and one of the women had, uh, had, had busted them, had, uh, confessed, uh, her sins to, to whomever the authority. So she was upset about that. And then he didn't hear from her really for, at all. She, didn't she hear, was he upset. Didn't... She was upset that somebody outside of the CIA and the political circles, like the media, had gotten a hold of what was happening. Yeah, that or might that have been. No, black, no, one of the, somebody one of the women, was blackmailing her and potentially going to go to the media and expose this whole thing. Yeah, um, and one of, it was one of the women in the group actually who was, mm-hmm. who was causing causing the problem. Um, but uh, anyway, Leary heard from her not long after uh, the assassination of JFK, and she was crying and saying he, you know, he was getting too far out. They couldn't control him, and suddenly it dawned on him that her lover was the president who had just been mm-hmm. shot, uh, JFK. So, you know, it's like, and then uh, several years later, he wondered what was, uh, whatever happened to Mary, and uh, he tracked down, uh, you know, where, where the records on her would exist, and she heard that, he heard that uh, she had been, shot in Washington, D.C. in 1964. So, I mean, all this is just like, come on, really? And then um, articles started coming out, I think as early as the 80s or 90s, that this woman, Mary Meyer, had had an affair with JFK and that they'd been smoking marijuana together in the, in the White House. Now, didn't Mondo <laughs> run a piece on the first psychedelic president? We did. We ran it twice. Yeah, you ran it twice. Yeah, that's what we ran it. High Frontiers, and then we ran it in Mondo with this incredible store, uh, front cover. With the Uh, the JFK, with all of the stuff coming out of his head. Yeah, with his head exploding and psychedelic (laughs) stuff coming out of his head. That's great. Yeah, that was pretty, pretty on the nose. Oh, man. So, and then there was the book that came out, I think, in 1998 by Nina Burley that really, you know, uh, confirmed not only that uh, Mary had an affair with JFK, but that she was friendly with Timothy Leary, um, and confirmed that they'd smoked pot together, and confirmed that she was sort of the the closest girlfriend to JFK. So uh, she could she confirmed everything, just about everything, except the the LSD trip. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Amazing. So, um, when you, when you were chron- chronicling Tim's life, were there any other surprises that you found that were, that were? Well, uh, yeah, I, at this point, I don't think any of it was that surprising to me. Um, 
I can't really think because of because you had. I mean, you had already done a lot of the research on on Timothy yeah. Leary. He was. Um, tell me, when did you first meet him? I met him in uh, 1980. He was on his um, uh, stand-up philosopher tour, which is mm-hmm. really pretty much a stand-up comedy tour. And uh, so myself and some friends went to see him in Rochester. We were in college in Brockport. And, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a particularly great comedy act. Uh, but afterwards, of course, I had an, another newspaper at that time. The, the, <laughs> habit, of, the habit of publishing. Um, this time it was avant-garde art that we were into. It was called Black Veins. And mm. uh, we wanted cool. to... Pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was based on a... Uh, uh, poem by, uh, is it Lutremont? Uh, Maldera. It was based on Maldera by, uh, um, oh, I can't think of his name. But, uh, anyway, we wanted to interview Tim and he was, he, once he focused that laser beam smile on us, and this was the eighties, he was kind of at the top of his game. We were all high, you know, we were, we were all naturally high and we went into the restaurant. That was attached to the club, and we sat with him for two hours and just uh, talked and talked and laughed, and he gave us a great interview that we published in, in that magazine. So that was the first time I met him. Then when I was doing High Frontiers, I was organizing High Frontiers, and these guys from Santa Cruz, uh, Peter Stafford and Bruce Eisner. Oh, yeah, Peter Stafford and Bruce Eisner, the, yeah, the Santa Cruz guys. <laughs> they, got wind, they got wind that I was doing this magazine and came up to see me. I was living in a shared house at that time in Mill Valley, of all places, where I am now. And they came up to see me and said, uh, the Commodore is wondering why you haven't called him yet. And the so, Commodore. So I said, hey, I called him on the phone, and he was very cheerful. And he said, he said you're not leading the psychedelic revolution. I am. <laughs> <laughs> hardly, hardly. It was like, thank God somebody else is doing this. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. You get you get tired after a while, and you got to pass it down to somebody. So, uh, yeah. did was did he actually give you the blessing of like being? Oh yeah, he was immediately totally enthusiastic. Great. And then and then we kept on interviewing him over and over again for High Frontiers. Which you know, his very naive way of approaching it, I suppose. Um, I mean, we did a lot of weirdly naive things, like running two Terrence McKenna interviews on, in our first issue. Um, <laughs> you know, because we had the one that he had done in public, and then we said, "Well, let's go do our own." Um, so, but anyway, yeah, he was completely cooperative. By the time we were reality hackers, he was just writing for us. And then he became a contributing editor to Mondo 2000 and did uh, articles and interviews for us. And it started with the William Gibson interview, the first issue of Mondo. We were determined which to do is, a- Which is what I think, I mean, that was the, that was the beginning of the cyberpunk movement. I mean, yeah. that, that whole Gibson thing, Gibson-Leary together, that was it. Yeah, and I mean, the funny thing was, um, you know, we were doing this... Uh, Edition for Cyberpunk, and we wanted to get you know the Fab Four, which was Gibson, Sterling, uh, John Shirley, and Rudy Rucker, and mm-hmm. we couldn't we couldn't get through to Gibson. I mean, Gibson was heavily managed at that point. You know, you couldn't just communicate with him personally. You had to go through the proper channels, and uh, they were saying he's all tied up. He doesn't have any time while he's in the Bay Area. For you guys, we were unknown. He's doing the Chronicle. He's doing the, you know, daily news shows. He's doing all the the big media. <clears throat> so we were very upset about the situation where we couldn't get. We had the three other interviews. We couldn't get Gibson, and uh, Queen Moo wound up on the phone with Timothy Leary, and Timothy Leary said, "Well, I have a tape of you know, uh, a dinner conversation that we had about our plans for uh, doing a neuromancer video game." Uh, attached to the theoretical Neuromancer movie that uh, never happened. Right. And he said, I'll give it to you. You can run that. So and he told us that like the day before we all went to see uh, Gibson at a science fiction bookstore in Berkeley. So there's this huge line of people. And, you know, I'm sure we looked really weird to him. And, you know, Queen Moo has this uh, grin that uh, looks like the Cheshire cat met a lawnmower. Um and so she comes up to him with this big scary grin on her face and she tells him she tells him that you know we're running that the conversation you had with Timothy Leary and he's drinking warm beer and he literally holds the side of his, the table like he's about to get seasick you know, mm-hmm. like, like the way he, he said 
that was no interview. That was a drunken business meeting. Right. And, uh, but, you know, we went ahead and, and ran the, uh, the conversation and he eventually became, uh, friendly actually. So. Yeah. Did he, did, when you guys walked in there to the book signing, did, did he realize that, that you were the culture that he was writing about? <laughs> I, I don't think he had but an you idea. were the I leaders think, of the crew that would become the cyberpunk movement. I mean, I, I think we probably looked to him like a bunch of weird cult people who were, you know, going to kidnap him and, you know, take him off somewhere. Yeah, well, you uh, you probably did look like that, but you were very, <laughs> you were much nicer, much friendlier people than that. Yeah, actually, none of us ever agreed with each other about anything, but you know, that, I'm sure we looked like that. Okay, well, um, you got the Timothy Leary timeline. Uh, what else is what else is going on with you these days? Any other projects coming up? Well, I've got, I'm still hard at work at the Monday 2000 history book, Use Your Hallucinations. So I'd say that's about half written, and I really need to put aside it. I could do it in a couple of months if I had the time. Um, so hopefully that'll get done soon. Um, I want to do something called Steal This Singularity. Um mm-hmm. Uh, kind of gathering the evidence for uh, uh, sort of opposing the singularity as a sort of plutocratic uh, high-end uh, thing and the idea that it should be uh, democratized and it shouldn't be vouchsafed just for the uh, the extremely rich and the extremely powerful. So I'm kind of playing around with that idea. Uh, other than that, um, I don't have a website right now or anything like that. I am actually, uh, I'd like to tell people that I'm tweeting for the Timothy Leary estate at uh, Timothy Leary Futique at uh, Timothy Leary numeral 8 on uh, Twitter. So uh, find me there, Timothy Leary Futique. Uh, and I'm also doing my own uh, tweet tweeting at uh, steal this singularity as steal this single. Yeah, steal this singularity sounds like a fun project. I'd be yeah, I think it's, a, it's following a lo- up with following up with you on that. Um, it sounds like you're just in the in the beginning period of, of it, but uh, I'd like to help you out with that if if um, yeah, you're oh, that would be fun. Yeah, yeah, at some point it'll make a great website, I think. Although I'm also thinking of Big Dada as a website. Big yeah. Dada. Big D A D A. Yeah. Uh huh. Somebody, a, some, yeah, somebody needs to play around with the whole big, big data thing, which I think is uh, uh, a little anal and and obsessive. Yeah, yeah. What are your feelings about Facebook these days? Oh, I mean, well, it, it, Facebook has been a nightmare. I mean, just just at the basic level of use, you know, it's such a simple and elegant thing where you could sign up there. And all your friends would see what you said, and you would see all your friends, what all your friends said. And they just screwed that. Um, obviously, <laughs> obviously for, you know, reasons of, you know, uh, uh, being able to, uh, monetize, monetize everything. Target, right. And target. They, they completely screwed that. And then Google Plus came along and, and they didn't do that either. And, you know, that you have to invest so much time. In figuring out how to make Google Plus useful, that you know, um, so you know, I mean, I still like to go on Facebook because you know, I can post something and a lot of people will respond. But you know, clearly it's it's nightmarish kind of kind of scenario. What, saying, would, what's that, what, what was the, that song? What would the Mondo Two Thousand story on Mark Zuckerberg look like? Oh, it would be nasty. Yeah, I don't, <laughs> uh, I don't know how we would how we would uh, manage that. Yeah. It would be um, it would be probably a queen move, kind of. He's hooked on spider venom, kind of. Uh, he, he must be hooked on spider venom, kind of article or something. All right, I think we're gonna have to wrap it up there, Jake. Uh, any last words? Thank you for joining us, uh, and uh, right. tell us a little bit now. Where can we find your book again? Uh, TimothyLeary.org. It's right there, and it's you can buy it uh, or you can read it free as an ebook. Well, right, sure. timothyleary.org. Thanks and for people talking. Can, uh, people can uh, contact me at uh, S-I-R-I-O-S-O at yahoo.com. Yeah, Sirioso at yahoo.com. Sirioso, and tell me what, the, what they think. Oh, also, right now, I'm on The Well. If you remember The Well, W-E-L-L. Oh, yeah. 
com doing a conversation about this book, uh, which is open to everybody. So, All right. I will post a link to that conversation when this interview yeah. goes up. So yeah, uh, people yeah. will be able to find that and uh, ask, ask you a question or contribute yeah. to the conversation. That would be great. All right. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, well, right. thanks so much for coming on with us. Yeah, anytime, anytime. I love Dose Nation. Always did. <laughs> Wonderful. Glad and, uh, there you go, right there from from the man who started <laughs> it all. Who was one of my earliest influences in underground. Oh yeah, well, Trip Magazine was great too. But yeah, well, there would be no Trip if there was if there wasn't a Reality Hacker. I mean, that's really the reason I started Trip was I was like, man, if that if that guy can start Reality Hacker, I can start. My own. <laughs> Anybody can do it. Yes, exactly. That's what we want people to. The thing. Yeah. All right, man. Well, thanks for joining us, everybody. We'll uh, see you next week at five. Uh, well, no, we don't do live anymore, so you can just edit that part out. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I- I'm used to uh, saying, "Okay, everybody, we'll see you live next week at five p.m." Yeah, all right.